did you do biology at school? Not after high school. I think I had a class called social issues, sort of like an ethics and biology class. But I don't think I think that was my science credit or one of my science credits. It's not proper biology unless you dissect a rat. That's that's biology, surely. So did you dissect a rat at school or a frog or I don't you know I don't know a raccoon or something in America? What, what what do they give you to dissect? Well, you do the the bigger things, the mammals. Let's say in um, <laughs> a moose. Please tell me it was a moose <laughs> around here. Yeah, roadkill, moose. Um, but what we dissected in the lower level of biology was a worm which was really gross an earthworm and then a frog right okay yeah the worm was it's a great starter animal to dissect because uh, it's like one long straight cut and then you're just pulling out all these long smaller worm looking things everything's long and, and thin I presume they kill the worm, don't they? I'm not intelligent. I always thought the worms were one of those creatures that it's not possible to kill because right. you, know, you 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 cut them in half and they just you know they just keep they just keep going. They keep wiggling. I don't know how long they keep wiggling. I don't, I'm not sure if that's entirely true that they just form a new worm. It's a great ability, <laughs> isn't it? That's great. <laughs> yeah, please come why, well, so If humans did that, then I would be out of a job. Actually, so I should be grateful. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Uzika. And I'm Andres Lorente. Every week on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch a new movie and an older movie, and we compare the two for you. Um, uh, super new, uh, at least it's brand new out in the UK uh, this week. A new movie, Poor Things. Has it been out for a while in the US? Not long, but it's already it's, it's already won some awards for the for the year. So it must have released just before the new year and then starts raking in the awards right away what a what a what a what a style what a strategy this is this, this is kind of it's oscar time isn't it yeah. it's, it's time to kind of sneak your your prestige movies out just before the oscar shortlists come yeah. out um i'm i'm happy to say so uh it's it's poor things this week uh we are comparing it uh to yorgos lanthimos's uh earlier film dog tooth so both directed by uh Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos. This is the podcast where I find it hard to pronounce simple non-Anglo-Saxon names. Uh, so join me as I stumble over the very simplest names. I'm, I, I apologise in advance. If it's not Smith or Jones, I just seem to struggle. Um, so I apologise. Uh, but happily, uh, I am uh, I'm going to announce it's the return of the Two Real Book Club this week because uh, I read the book. I read the book of the film. Uh, so mm. Poor Things is adapted from a 1992 novel by Alistair Gray uh, called Poor Things. Wow. I've read that. So oh. I, I've never read Frankenstein, but I've read that. Have you read it? Of course not. No. <laughs> I come unprepared as always. <laughs> so I've got a few things to say about um, uh, how the film compares to the book. Uh, uh, the book, great fun. The film is fine. Um, so, uh, yeah, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Correct me when I get these wrong. Uh, written by Tony McNamara. Yeah. Uh, who, now, he wrote um, The Favourite, yep. which was uh, Lanthimos' last film, which I've not seen. He wrote Cruella, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, Emma Stone's last big film, yeah. uh, which I have seen and rather regret seeing. And he's the creator of the Australian TV show Doctor Doctor. Uh, which in the UK is just a lead-in for a joke, uh, whereas apparently it's an entire television show in Australia. <laughs> um, the film has... Uh, it's got Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, um, big cast, 
35 million dollars i think they spent on it wow. and for how the film looks i think yeah. um, that that money went a long way because yeah. it's all on the screen um shall i tell you the story please of oh, poor things now i say please do <laughs> So, it's a, a Victorian kind of Frankenstein fantasy. Uh, Poor Things uh, sees a disfigured but brilliant scientist, Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe, take the body of a suicide to create a reborn adult woman who has the brain of a baby, who he calls Bella Baxter, pretending that she is his his niece. Uh, this is play- She's played by Emma Stone, who is getting all the plaudits. Uh, he hires Max McCandles, uh, played by uh, comedian uh, Remy Youssef, to record her every movement as she learns and develops. And as a result, uh, Max falls in love. But... Furious at being kept a captive in Godwin's mansion and developing a taste for sex. Uh, There's no other word for it. Uh, There's a lot of it in the film. Bella accepts an invitation from the rakish solicitor Duncan Wedderburn, Mark Ruffalo, uh, to tour Europe with him on a journey of discovery. And a lot of what they're discovering is in the bedroom. But uh, what Bella discovers... As they travel to Lisbon, to the Mediterranean, to Alexandria, to Paris, she discovers more than just Wedderburn's personal version of the Karma Sutra. And uh, as she matures, so she sets out to fix the world that she has been reborn into. But when she returns uh, to Baxter's house and laboratory, there are truths to learn about the world and her past that may change her whole future. Wow! <laughs> Is that was that was that was that gothic enough? That description. It's quite a gothic film. Right on, right on, gothic. Yeah, right on. It's so, so, so this, like you said, it's, this is an awards uh, award season favorite. Yeah, uh, right now. So it's just won Golden Globes for uh, best comedy mm-hmm. and best actress. It's won the National Board of Review award for best adapted screenplay. Uh, it looks like it's going to be an Oscar favorite. And uh, I, I went to see it yesterday, and I came out of it, and I thought, well, that was okay. Uh, and it is. I think this film is okay. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm not sure it's much better than okay. Did you come out of the film singing the theme song and buying the soundtrack and buying the T-shirt? I loved the music. It was quite sparse, but when it came in, it was really bizarre and odd. And in one scene, you actually even see one of the alleged instruments that's being played. Um <laughs> I love the music. I did. I actually really liked this film. I'm not going to say full on love, but I definitely really liked this film. It's kind of in my wheelhouse to begin with. Um, very absurd, comic, dark um, material. Loved it. I love that stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's really good. I, I'm, I'm going to go better than okay. I'm going to say at least oh. doubly, doubly okay at the very least. That's OOKK or something. But um, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Two thumbs half up each. <laughs> exactly. We, we'll kind of we'll ring the spoiler bell in a yeah. minute. But there are there are a few sort of non-spoilery things um, worth mentioning. Sure. I've got uh, you know, two things I would concentrate on. The first one is where was this filmed? Um, 
I, you know, I do not know, but there are some tremendously elaborate sets yeah. here. I spent a lot of the film really marvelling at the sets yeah. and the locations. There's the house, the ship, there's Lisbon, Paris, Alexandria. There's a lot of super wide angle filming that makes me think that a lot of the locations are actually real places. The only way to shoot them was with these super wide angle lenses because it's a real house. It's a real corridor. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a real hotel. Um, and... The way that the sets have been dressed and the the costumes, I think the production design on this film is pretty outstanding. Yeah, it's great. You know, there are little models that come straight out of the Wes Anderson workshop. There are costumes um, mm-hmm. that are enchanting, entertaining. Incredibly, the little title cards that introduce each new location as the characters go somewhere now are just incredible. Yeah. These beautiful kind of digital surreal delights. They look like animated Max Ernst postcards. There's an awful lot about the look of the film that I really enjoyed. It doesn't really quite look like anything else. There are a lot of fisheye lens um, moments, mm, though, too, which yeah. is strange because uh, you get these wide-angle lenses, but you also get the occasional fisheye lens, which you don't see too much in filmmaking anymore. And I'm, I'm, that's the one thing that I've really wrestled with thematically. I don't know why those were used very often. It was almost like there was someone else in the room watching some sort of, a, I don't know, like deity force or something like that. Um because they, they they didn't really come in any logical sequence or anything like that, or just seemed like another way to look at the film. Of course, a lot of it takes place on a boat, which has those port windows, which kind of almost feel fisheye-like. Right? I just didn't understand uh-huh. what the the thematic decision behind using that um, that lens was. I mean, I I think that that's a bit of a theme uh, of my attitude about the whole film, which is that you know there's lots of great stuff on screen, but how closely it thematically fits with the rest of the the story, you know, I am not utterly convinced. There's great production design. Does the production design in, reinforce the themes of the film, or does it just you know look interesting? Mm. Um, one thing I wrote in my in my um, notes. Um, I said, in part, the film reminds me of Barbie insofar as it has some interesting points to make, but it's not really entirely sure what it wants to say or how it, yeah. how it wants to say it and ends up being a bit of a jumble of ideas. Yeah. I think there's a bunch of interesting ideas and a bunch of interesting artistic decisions, but they're kind of a bit jumbled together and I don't think they're entirely unified. Uh, I don't think they're all pointing in the same direction. It's, it's thematically similar to Barbie as well in the... Um, the the women's advocacy for an agency for their own sexuality. I thought that was a, in both films for sure. I mean, there's a lot of sex in this film and, and it, almost too much of her awakening seems to be sexual, but then it does sort of eventually transform into um, like a wider awakening, a philosophical awakening as well as her, as her, as her body and her mind grow. I mean, this film is all about an enormous um, growth arc for, for the Bella character, right? She starts out, she can barely control her body and has very limited language skills. And by the end, she's just a fully formed, um, oh, she's like you. She's a doctor by the very end. (laughs) She doesn't really study very much to become a doctor, but she claims she will be a doctor. So I think um, there's a lot of emphasis on sexual agency for sure. But I think... um, that starts to fade down a little bit. It's almost like she burns through this time with, um, what's his name? Is it Wedderburn? Wedderburn, isn't it? Wedderburn. <laughs> Mark name. Ruffalo with a, bit of, with a bit of a wobbly English accent. Yeah, exactly. I think. Uh, he, he comes like, uh, he's some, somebody out of a sketch show, isn't he? More than yeah. a, <laughs> but then a lot of the characters are kind of out of a sketch show in this film. Yeah. So she sort of burns through Wedderburn as a, like her sexual awakening character, her partner there. And then I think she becomes far more... Um, 
uh, philosophical and, uh, and and contemplative, and that's an interesting arc for me, considering where she starts. Um, in terms of filming, I think it was mostly in London. I think it's actually mostly a studio thing, to be honest with you. It's the book is all set in Glasgow. Oh. I, mean, I was scratching my head trying to figure out well, why was it that they've moved the, the central action from Glasgow to London. It yeah. doesn't really seem to affect the story, mm. and I decided it probably it was probably because. Mark Ruffalo couldn't do a Scottish accent, but he oh. could do an English one, sort of. So they had to just <laughs> um, rewrite the whole script so that it's set in London now, because that's that's the accent that Mark can do. Um, let's ring the spoiler bell, because I've some, got some stuff to talk about the book, which I think yeah. may illuminate a little bit of the, 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 the thinking behind the film. Let me so, ring the bell. Oh, very gothic spoiler bell. So to be clear, you're about to spoil both the book and the film, is that correct? You're right. I should have rung the bell twice. You're right. Dude, I could ring it again. Ring it again. So, <laughs> I ring it. I'm gonna ring it twice. <laughs> so, um, I will tell you about the book. The book yeah. is, um, in short, the book is great. The book is the best book I've read for quite some time. The book uh, uh, won the Guardian Fiction Award and the Whitbread Award in 1992. They're both significant British literary awards. I think the book goes a long way to explain what I came away thinking might be missing from the film. So the film and the book are both a kind of feminist pastiche of of Frankenstein. But the book really kind of delves into the pastiche. It takes kind of it does take elements of Frankenstein and bits of sort of Dracula and bits of Wuthering Heights and this kind of all this sort of 19th century Victorian literature. And it sort of mixes it together and rolls around in it. There's bits of the book that are written in um, pantameter. There's bits of the book that are just written in pure little abbreviations. There's lots of bits of the book which are epistolary. Is that the right word? Made out of letters. What's the right word? I'm not even going to try. I think epistolary. <laughs> you, yeah, I, I, I know. It, I should know when I'm beat. Um, it, it's, it's made out of letters, and um, <laughs> so so it's. Um, I feel like um, the book so revels in its Victorian sort of uh, world that I came away thinking, like, surely the film should have done the same. I wasn't sure what films poor things reminded me of if anything it's probably um the elephant man mm. so david lynch's version from 1982 i think and that is a lovely film and it's a film that deserves homage and there are little bits of the elephant man i think maybe in poor things but but i was expecting um poor things to sort of riff on um frankenstein in a cinematic way so we should have nods to famous cinematic frankensteins i wanted to see like a nod to blade runner or robocop or the fly or something like that um that would have been i think a clever way to adapt the spirit of the book which is you know frankensteining its way from literature into a modern book and then the other thing about the book is that um the book has a a much more complicated structure suppose it's got this nested structure supposedly it is the found manuscript of a book written by uh, McCandless, um, who's who's renamed mm. as McCandles. So he is he is a Glaswegian public health inspector, and uh, it has an introduction by a modern historian who claims to have found this book. And then you get the book which the Glaswegian doctor has written, and then um, the historian explains that at the back of the manuscript there is a letter from the real Bella Baxter, who was the wife of the real McCandless, who was this public health inspector. And she, in this letter, explains that the whole book is a stupid fantasy by her useless husband. And then she explains what her own real story is. And that comes out in her letter and then in some historical footnotes based on the letter. She herself was a successful doctor of a very socialist bent. 
And she argues that this story was just a bit of silliness, which diminishes the importance of her own life and her own work. And I think that kind of is what the book and I think the film is about, the way that women's lives are hijacked as canvases for the stories that men want to tell about them Mm. and about themselves. But all that is kind of missing from the film. So we get... The, we get sort of the fantasy book, which is the centrepiece of the original novel, but not the bits outside, which give it a much more sophisticated um, uh, reading. Um, the third act of the of the book um, is also by far the most exciting bit. So in the film, uh, Bella travels around Europe and has an awful lot of sex with Mark Ruffalo and then she returns to Glasgow and she says, uh, or rather in, in to London, she, she returns uh, back to, to Willem Dafoe, to Baxter and she says, um, you know, I've done my adventuring, I'm going to get married to McCandles now. They go to the church and then the ceremony is interrupted by the man who was the husband of her body mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, who says, no, that's my wife, you can't marry her. And then they all go back to, to Baxter's house and they have like you know, it's maybe it's a fifth of the book. They had this long argument. Baxter tries to say, "Oh no, it's you know, it's not your wife. It's someone who looks similar." And then he gets rumbled. And then there's an investigator or a, a PI who comes in and shows them some evidence. And then they have a long chat about, "Well, you know, what is it to be in a person? You know, is it the brain? Is it the body?" And then Bella kind of announces that she has her own agency, and she says, "No, well, I'm going to choose what happens to me anyway." Yeah. Um, and then there's and then there's a kind of a bit of a shootout, and I think she is the one who gets shot in oh. the book, whereas in the film it is yeah. Blessington who gets shot. Um, whereas uh, the the third act that we get in the film is you know, really quite different. We have the church scene, but then she just volunteers to go off with the man who used to be her husband, and we get a very different bit of story. Um, and it all feels just a little bit less satisfying and a bit more cartoony to me. I, I think it for me it works. It definitely works. So it's this uh, this twist at the end where the husband shows up when she's about to marry um, the candles, and then he takes her back to. I think it's this curiosity. She wants to know what what this body has experienced in the past. I think it's all about her trying to know. I mean, much of the film is about Bella learning the outside world, right, or, or what she's at least exposed to, and then the very last bit really is her getting to know her previous world that her body would have known. And uh, I love it when he takes her back to the estate and he has to use a gun against his own, just to get into the house, he has to use a gun because the staff at the house hate him so much. He's convinced they're going to kill him at any time. And you immediately know who this guy is and she's going to regret this decision, I think. But there's, <laughs> there's this wonderful bit of, you know, 10 minutes or so of tension at the very end of how is she going to get out of this? Um, she's obviously a much better person than the person she was before. She's got to get away from this monster because she really should be marrying the nicer guy McCandles. Um, and then she shoots him and boy, his fate is wonderful at the very end, I thought. So for me, I think that between cinema and uh, literature, I think that's the better ending. I can't imagine going back to the house and having a debate um, about um, where Bella should go among men. I don't think that would have worked well in a film. Yeah, fair enough. It's not cinematic. You're right. It's literary. So I think it's, yeah, I think they've made a great decision there. And, and this could be a case where I haven't read the book, but it's the book sounds great. And it has great ideas that are probably even more complicated than you can handle in poor things. This is about a two-hour film, I think. So, um, But I think this film is still very good, too. So it could be one of those examples where you get a good film out of a good book and everybody wins. Bob's your uncle, right? 
I was I the very very ending of the film uh, where Blessington, her former husband, you know, ends up uh, meeting this kind of sticky fate where basically she turns him into a goat, doesn't yeah. she? Or she swaps his brain with a goat's brain. You know, and it's kind of it's the, it is a grotesque and gothic punishment. Yes, it did leave me slightly kind of feeling. Well, that seems you know he's not a good guy, but that seems like an unusually cruel and strange punishment, and it did make me question you know what I understood about her character. Yeah, she um. She, when she's in Paris, she kind of hooks up with this kind of socialist scene, and you sort of think this is part of her awakening, is a political awakening, and she wants you know proper justice. But yeah. then when she has this first opportunity that she returns to London, she meets her own f- personal form of justice. Yeah. It's a pretty terrifying, weird kind of justice. He's not a good character. Yeah. You know, he deserves a sticky end. I don't know whether he quite deserves that grotesque sticky end, though. It's clever for for the terms of the film. Uh, he kind of does, and I think. We should mention that there are all sorts of grotesque uh, experiments walking around on the grounds of Godwin Baxter's uh, mansion. Um, well, there's, there's like a chicken with a puppy's dog, a puppy dog, like a, like a schnauzer or yes. some sort of head on a goose and uh, like a walking goose that has a cat body or something like that. I mean, he's he's done all these experiments and you get to see them, which is really clever. And then I think, the, you know, the massive payoff is at the end that... She decides. She, what does she say? She wants to. I want to cut. I want to be a surgeon. I want to cut. I want. I will carve with compassion. So, <laughs> <laughs> so she immediately goes against what she'd said just a few minutes earlier. But I, th- I think it is the right ending for um, this film. And this is a fairy tale. I mean, there's definitely. You've, you've mentioned a number of, of fairy tales, and that's what this is. Um, I, you know, I'm a little bit obsessed with beginnings and endings, but um, the opening is. It's it's as if the. I don't know if it's the first title card, but it's sort of stitched. The story is stitched into. Some sort of quilted pillow or something like yes. that. Yeah, the, the needlework, um, which just tells me, okay, it's a fairy tale. And then, for me, I th- you've mentioned Frankenstein. I think that's in there. I think a lot of the, the the fairy tales and some of the gothic stuff is in there. But I also think Candide is in there, the Voltaire oh. book, um, because at the end they're in their garden. She's studying. She's drinking uh, what, gin and tonic, or who knows what it is. Um, but she's just in her garden, you know, tending to her garden. Um, and a lot of the experiences along the way are very similar. A lot of it happens in Lisbon. I know that Voltaire was obsessed with this earthquake that had happened in Lisbon. And, you know, why did all these innocent people die in the, I think it was the 1600s or 1700s, um, in this in this um, earthquake? And she goes to Lisbon. That's the first place that uh, Wedderburn takes her. And, there, you know, it's got the voyage, the travels of Candide and this learning experience of someone going through life and learning more and more about the world and learning how it's wicked, but also learning how it's good. Um, so that, for me, that story is in there more than any of the other fairy tales on one level. Mm. Um, so I think it depends on the lens of what fairy tale you look at the film or what, you know, previous literature you look at, but I'm sure that some of this is based on Candide and it's, they do a pretty good job of it too, which is nice. So we've kind of uh, sort of sort of alluded to what the film might be about it's or at least uh, i was kind of writing in my notebook you know it's that perennial screenwritery question what is the film about what's yeah. it about and i wrote down like a few suggestions i thought you know it's kind of about that men use women for their own purposes yes kind of um it, in, in a way it's about this what is in some quarters still a shocking idea which is that women may enjoy sex um, you know, this is not news, but it's still, um, yeah, it's, it's a theme. And which and it's, it's, it's kind of about, I wonder whether it might in part be about 
something that we talk, we'll talk about later, I think, which is the, the myth of the perfect woman insofar as, you know, everybody who meets Bella loves her. She is beautiful. Mm-hmm. She is sexy. She has the mind of a child. Um, is is that what we as a society think the perfect woman is? Um, is that what it's about? It's sort of about self-discovery, but even Bella's self-discovery is largely mediated by the men around her, more or less. She doesn't do a great deal of adventuring entirely on her own. She still has to either um, appease or return to or dig out of trouble the men that she's got around her. I guess the the, the thing that struck me, and I'm going to go back to Candide immediately, I think the thing mm. that struck me more is that what it's about is um, if you look at the world through the gaze of a child or someone who is young at heart or young at mind, it just seems absurd and and hilarious. So you've got that this child-eyed look at the world that as she grows, I mean, her entire life goes from child to adult within, I don't know, a year or something like that as she becomes you know accustomed to her body and her brain. Mm. Um, and you also see how evil it is. And I think it's just trying to find your place in this world where it can be, there can be lots of wonderful moments that are just absurdly funny, but there are also some really just... Uh, awfully evil moments and awful things about the world that you have to contend with and you have to sort of find your place in the world. So for me, I think that's the underlying theme um, just because her arc is so clear going from, you know, very, very simple to quite um, a complicated woman in the, in the in the course of the two hours of the film. So I think I, for me, that's what I would focus on more. And I think that's in there pretty clearly you know, the sexual politics are definitely there as well. And, you know, we we haven't mentioned that she ends up working in a brothel in Paris for quite a long time in order to raise the money to go back to Godwin, who's dying in um, London. So there's there's that whole element as well. Um, but for me, yeah, it's mostly about just how we interpret the world all the way from children and how we find a place in this absurd world as adults. Uh, possible that there might be too much sex in the film? Impossible, absolutely impossible. <laughs> it's just not even a possibility anywhere. Um, there, there, there actually kind of is. I think you're right. Yeah, I think, and again, that's why you start to think, oh, this film's about sexual agency, um, in a way that, like in Barbie, it's quite subtle. It's just that last moment where she needs to see her gynecologist, or she wants to, <laughs> she wants to be able to see a gynecologist. Um, this is it's a little overdone for sure. Um, and I did come out kind of looking at that. I think the film is two hours, 22, something like that. And I was yeah. thinking, well, you actually could have chopped off half an hour of that. And yeah. a significant proportion of that would have been Emma Stone in bed. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I agree. I agree. It's probably got, uh, it's, there are many minutes of it. Actually, it's probably like 12 or 15 minutes of sex. But yeah, you could get away <laughs> with five or six, I think. <laughs> that would seem the appropriate length of time. Um, could could we talk a little bit about the structure? Because you said that the structure mm. of the, in the film is, in the book is really quite strong and the structure is a little bit too strong in the film i think you get these chapter you said you mentioned the title cards a little bit yeah i wrote i started writing down a bunch of them i was in the dark writing done things down but lisbon is one of them i thought that was the first time i saw a title card and then there's the card the ship alexandria is a title card i don't think paris ever got one but they said that they were going to marseille i i, I think there is a paris one but okay. i could be wrong so there are these title cards which to a certain extent, it started to feel like a travel movie in the sense that why aren't they, you know, staying more in one place? And I think you know, he, 
Wedderburn has her in Lisbon, and then he—I think she's drawing too much attention. He actually—he actually sequesters her even more. I think you know this film is a lot about sequestration. Sequestration. Oh my God. Mm. Come on, help me on that, James. I helped you. I built. Yeah, I, I, I trust your pronunciation much more than my pronunciation of epistolary. So yes, absolutely, you get four marks. Sequestration. She's, I'll buy that. Godwin has her sequestered. Wedderburn has her kind of under his control in Lisbon, but he needs even more control, so he gets her under a cruise ship where she's you know confined to a room or two. Which ironically is when she starts to sort of experience the world more through a couple of other people, and her brain starts expanding quite fast. Um, and then she's, you know, she's always kind of in small spaces and confined, and she ends up there too because she basically goes back to Godwin's place. But a lot of that times is in Paris, and we're not seeing, you know, beautiful shots of Paris and all that. We're seeing the brothel where she works in Paris. Um, so it almost felt like it was just following this travel, travel story kind of uh, motif, which again it happens quite a bit in Candide because there's all this world romping, and um, I. Is that much different in the book? Is it all about moving, like exhausting one place for its story resources and then going somewhere else and and having the story change with it? The itinerary is just the same uh, in the book. Absolutely. And um, for for a a movie that could be interpreted as a travelogue, you never get or very rarely get the impression that the camera has actually ever been outside. All of the places that she travelled yeah. to feel like have, they have this kind of doll's house feeling, don't they? They are, yeah. you know, they feel like they're studio based, or they've been done digitally on the computer, or they've been, you know, turned into models. There's something a very um, storybook like. It feels like a, a massive pop up book, doesn't it? Yeah. Which gives yes. it that fairy tale feel. Yeah, and I think that's consistent with the theme of a woman in her place, right? She's under the control of one man or another in various spaces. Even when she is in control of her own life, it's at the behest of the men who come to visit her and pay for, for pay for sex. So it's it's all about, I think, like confining her. The whole story is kind of, and then she by the very end. She's in her world. She's surrounded by bizarre creatures of her own invention and her father's invention. Um, but she's still confined. She's just that she now has some power over that world. I think they not only do they have this kind of uh, quiet doll's house uh, mise-en-scene, but the, they veer from colour to black and white a lot as well, don't they? And I was trying to figure out, well, what's the rule there? I think you know, the idea is that her, her scenes as of a small child are black and white, and then yeah. as she matures, the world becomes colour. Yeah. I sort of feel that's almost the wrong way around. I wonder whether, when you are a child, yeah. everything is very bright and technicolour, and mm-hmm. you know, everything is bright pink or very darkest, bleakest black. Yeah. And um, it almost feels as if you know, the kind of the, the the subtlety and the a more complex um, kind of palette should come um, to replace, you know, very bright primary colours rather than just a black and white world. I'm not sure that I'm convinced that children grow up in a black and white world. Maybe the idea is that, well, you know, you go from a binary view of the world to something more nuanced, but yeah. I wasn't completely convinced. I mean, it's an artistic choice and, they've, you know, they've given it a go and well done. I'm, you know, I'm not going to point the finger and say, you've done it wrong. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's an interesting idea. I think that first act at Godwin's place mostly is black and white, and then the color comes with the sex. Ironically, I think it's with um, ah. when they go to Lisbon. All of a sudden, you, get, you start seeing a lot of color, um, and then I'm not sure how much the black and white returns after that point. But that's what I noticed, anyways. That when she finally gets out of that first um, that first imprisonment at Godwin's place, then she's liberated, and that's where the color comes. And that's where she's doing a lot of the childlike exploration. So it, it, I, you're you're spot on. I would imagine a color. A, Childhood would be colorful, and then those mean years of just boredom and ennui and and labor that should be in black and white. But 
I think it actually just it coincides with the sex. Sex is <laughs> so uh, the fi- the film. You are right. The film is it's original, and I I do think it largely eschews cliches. Mm-hmm. Oh, but <laughs> I'm still gonna I'm still gonna place a call to our favourite squad, maybe to issue a warning. I'm mm-hmm. still gonna phone the cliche squad. Cliche squad. I'm just going to ask the officers to waggle their fingers very slightly. At this. I don't think this film is full of cliches at all, but there are a couple of things that stood out to me. One of them was um, getting an adult to behave like a child, um, meaning that they refer to themselves in the third person all the time. Mm. Uh, I'm just not convinced that children do this for very long. It feels like it's a convenient shorthand. If you want a child yeah. to talk like a baby, then yeah. get them to talk in the, in the third person. I'd, I'm not sure that that's something that really happens. I think that's something that happens when you want to very quickly write down, oh, this is childish dialogue. Yeah. Uh, I think I think a lot of Emma Stone's physical acting is great. I came away feeling like she had spent a lot of attention on watching small children play and move you know and her movement coach or whatever you know earned their money on this film yeah um i think the way that she moves as a toddler is really good but the dialogue uh less so uh i i like the dialogue in general in the film right i i know you're you're thinking about things like uh bella wants more furious jumping (laughs) that kind of stuff right um when she's talking about herself she is bella um i wonder about that i wonder if Children, it's it's the way the children see the world. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't have children of my own that age, so I can't say that uh, I have noticed whether kids speak in third person like that. But it's, it would be interesting is if whether they see themselves included in the world, and it's a we kind of thing, so they should be using I more, or if they see the world as being this thing that they explore, and then they can actually see themselves exploring it, and that's why they use third person. So they're might be some sort of child psychology question in there, but you're absolutely right. And I, I agree with you also on her acting. I thought she did a great job with the physicality of it. And it's hard, I think, you know, you're, you're shooting these things out of sequence, so she's got to remember what mm. stage Bella is when she's actually performing the dance, for example, which is just an electrifying moment. Yeah. Um, or when she's doing various things. So that's really complicated as an actor, and that's one thing that struck me in the theater while I was watching it. Is, wow, she really... Is she's got great control of not having control of her body, I guess. <laughs> There's one other little warning from from the cliche squad on my behalf, which is just, um, which I feel something which I see disproportionately in cinema, which is uh, women need money, so they turn to sex work. Because you know, I, yeah. I do appreciate that this is a real thing that happens in the real world. It is, yeah. and also it is it's part of the book, you know, and it matches the character who is herself very interested in sex. And yeah. you could argue, well, yep, yeah, this is this is actually a natural way for her to make some money. And they do sort of comment on it, and that's all okay. But I just came away thinking, well, out of all the female characters that I've seen in this film, a large proportion of them were sex workers. It's yeah. just like, uh, it, sometimes it just reminds me, it's a little bit of a reflection maybe of the place of women in the film business. I don't know. I yeah. just think it's, it's um, this is something which happens just a little bit too often for me to feel that it should always be given a pass. Yeah, I agree. This is a, this is a funny film though, because it's kind of timeless, isn't it? I mean, we assume that it takes place um, in an era when that was definitely a, a very common job for women. And maybe one of the few jobs that was available to them. It's, I mean, it, it has a very Victorian era. She's called Victoria. Right? Her original name was Victoria. Right? It has mm. this sort of Victorian era um, look and feel about it. But at the same time, 
I think it's sort of one of these universal tales, and that's why you know so much of it comes out of fairy tale and and some of the myths that we're familiar with. So it it you're absolutely right on the on the cliche, but I guess yeah, I mean I I, I understand it a little bit just based on the fact that it's a like an it's a period piece in some way. Yep, I've got a couple. Oh, first one's just a medical opinion. Um, when Godwin dies, sorry everybody, Godwin dies. God, she calls him <laughs> God most of the time. Yeah, God dies. When God dies, she reaches and closes his eyes, bringing the eyelids down so that he's not just staring into space like that. And I, I've never really seen a dead body in that way. So, do people do that? Is that is that a, is that a thing? Uh, yeah, you know, it kind of is a thing, but in in the in real life, um, after someone has died, you close their eyes, and then annoyingly, their eyes just gradually open back up oh, again. Really? And they, oh, I've got to keep doing this. This is oh, no, you kind of think, oh, family are coming in in a minute. Come on, come on, please stay shut, please, yeah. please, please stay oh, shut. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, so it is a thing, but people don't politely keep their eyes shut after okay. you've closed them. I'm afraid. Uh-huh. Good. Thank you for the clarification. I knew that would be a good answer from you. Yeah, because it seems to always happen in films. It's like no one ever <laughs> dies with their eyes closed in films. So that's a cliche for me. Uh, the one that I really saw, though, and I see a lot, is um, screenwriters often talk about how something has to die at the end of Act 2. And um, ah. for me, the Act 2 really ends with the, the it's the dissolution of her relationship with Wedderburn. So it happens in, in the open in this public square in Paris and there just happens to be a very slow intentional death march going behind them as they're sort of breaking <laughs> up and heading their different ways. Someone's funeral is just passing through with a horse and carriage of a hearse and all the mourners walking behind and it's 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 a little on the nose. It's definitely very obvious but I think <laughs> something has to die there so let's have a dead body going through the relationship. Um, <laughs> so that would be my cliche. That's the one that I really noticed. But again, this is uh, it's something of a period piece and you can get away with anything. And it's fantasy. It's definitely fantasy. So uh, um, I'm willing to to let them have that one for sure. There's, there's, there's so much which is unusual and remarkable and not the commonplace in this film. I think, yeah, they're allowed a few cliches to ground us. It's all right. I agree. I agree. For sure. I think there will be more to say about poor things when we talk about our our second film. Let's have yeah. a break. Um, and then uh, we will come back and we'll have a chat about uh, 2009's Dog Tooth. Ooh, sounds good. Dino, Dino. Saldino, Pibolino, Primadino, Puppuccino, Dino Rente. Two real cinema club listeners will be saddened to learn that Dino, the sweet and gorgeous pit bull terrier, who has been number one fan of the pod this past year while living in puppy hospice with my sister, had to be euthanized last week. Hmm... He had a great final year despite health concerns and lived long enough to pleasantly surprise his veterinarians. Uh, TRCC community members remember Dino for his PP, his bravery (laughs) facing terminal illness, his love of the Bose QC45 headphones, noise cancellation included, and for being the lucky one who slept all the way through Oppenheimer. (laughs) Dino, for you, it's on to the big canine sleep. 
may it be exclusively REM sleep full of doggy dreams where Christopher Nolan films disturb you no more. <laughs> Bark into that good night, Pibolino. Pouring one out for Dina. Yeah, let's pour one out for Dina. And we are back. Whether or not you want us to be, we are here long <laughs> in the tooth. Soon to discover uh, the dog tooth. Or pull the dog tooth. But if you want to see Dino in all his glory, please check out uh, the images of Dino on Instagram. He is immortal. Mm. Thanks to the internet. See, so it's good for something. It's, it is good for something. It's good for socials. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, dog tooth. 2009, I believe. Yeah. Uh, another Yorgos Lanthimos film. Oh, I see you pronounce his name so much better than me. I'm embarrassed now of the mess I made of that in the first half. That's terrible, isn't it? I oh, don't no. know. I heard Emma Stone, when she accepted her award, she called him Yorgo. I thought it was Yorgo. So it's possible you don't even say that S, but... Uh, oh. We did the Yorgo, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos doubleheader this week, didn't we? we had, yeah, uh, absolutely. So this is like, this is the film that brought him to prominence, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, something old, something new. Um... I think I chose it. I don't know if you chose it or I chose it. Or... I think I think I think you chose it. And you know what? I'm going to get you to tell me. Oh. why did you choose it? Do you have any other questions for me, Council? I'm interested in Yorgos Lanthimos. I, I don't know that I like all of his films that much, but um, I like what he's doing. He's got some some decent range, and he's got uh, a lot of that absurdity that I love to see on screen because I don't see enough of it in life. So. I'm impressed with him, yeah. I'm, sure. I'm not very familiar with his work. So he's, he made The Lobster, which yep. I have not seen. Okay. The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I have not seen. The Favourite, yep. which I have not seen. I had a look on um, on uh, Wikipedia, and the, the fact that leapt out at me from his biography is that he is the son of a Greek national basketball player. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there should be more There should be more basketball in these films. Why is there not? Well, he does. He does seem to have like shooting sports and various sports moments, but uh, yeah, maybe he's just, uh, he's, he's buried all that and maybe he's just uh, trying to forget. Maybe, I mean, imagine listening to that basketball, just hitting the floor again and again your whole <laughs> life. I mean, it's a noisy game. So I think some things you just want to like block out, block out of your memory and move on. Um, I think I've seen four films of his. Okay. You know, you're doing much better than me. I've only seen these two. Yeah, the favorite was the one that Olivia Coleman won an award for, and mm. Emma Stone was in that. And now you've got Emma Stone winning award, at least one award for this next one. Um, I have seen The Lobster, which is quite entertaining. Might not have the best ending. Ooh, theme emerging. Ah. Um, ending is a little obtuse, to say the least. Um, I've seen The Favorite, and then I've seen these two films now, Dogtooth. So I think I've seen four. I think he's got a couple others that I'll go check out the killing of a sacred deer i don't think the uh, anesthetists come out too well in that film so you <laughs> might not want to see that one yeah i thought there must be a reason why i've deliberately avoided that yeah that's, that's not on the anesthetic syllabus that film there's, there's, one, there's one other thing which i think is probably worth talking about before we get into dog tooth which is just um yeah 
And, uh, and this is kind of like, you know, this is a recent historical memory. In 2009, yeah. um, for Greek cinema, well, the Greek econom- economy at that point was was contracting at an alarming yeah. rate. So this is like, this is in the lead up to the country having an economic bailout by the IMF in 2010. Yep. And then by 2012, there was a lot of speculation that Greece was going to leave the European Union. That's right. People first coined this notion of Grexit, uh, which then ended up being turned into Brexit. Um, uh, you know, th- th- they were going to leave the single currency to try and kind of solve this big government debt crisis. I think this kind of economic uncertainty is an important little bit of background, I think, mm. to kind of which I think gives some context to the film. Um, but I could be wrong. Maybe I'm maybe mm. I'm overinterpreting or misinterpreting. Um, do you want to tell us what the story is? Yeah, I'll tell you a few things about it. Um, I would say first that it was, um, I think, made. I calculated like three hundred thousand dollars, something like that. Gross Ooh, that's not much. Yeah, grossed six hundred thousand. So it's definitely coming from an austere budget, if not an austere time in the Greek economy. And uh, yeah, I think that I think those those times kind of match up. So there could be some. Uh, correlation between the economic feeling in Greece as well as the the film. Um, you figure he was probably writing and working on it a couple years before that, so 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Um, so yeah, I will tell you a little bit more about the story. Uh, screenplay was by Yorgos Lanthimos and Ephemis Philippou. Philippou. Oh, well done. Very good. And Ephemis, yeah. I, I know when I'm beat. <laughs> Ephemis Philippou also wrote The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. So these guys have worked mm. together a little bit. Um, here we go. The cast. Christos Sterigoglu as the father. Michelle Valley. Go figure. Michelle Valley as mother. <laughs> then again, I'm not sure she speaks any Greek in this film, so she might be uh, in a, some Anglophone ah. just sitting in. She does have some lines. but uh, Angeliki Papulia as the eldest daughter. Uh, Christos Pasalis as the son, Mary Sony as younger daughter, and Anna Kaletzidou, Kaletzidou as Christina. It's really kind of a... Now you're just showing off. (laughs) (laughs) Stumbling through. That's why they call them son, older daughter, and younger (laughs) daughter in the film. These children do not really have names. Um, No. And it's kind of a six-hander. I mean, those are the six characters. There are a couple other people you see... Um, a little bit, and one one thing I will say is this is film. This is a film that's sort of written for the cheap and made on the cheap, so it's a really economical film in that way. So that might be the biggest reflection of the economy of the times. That if you could get three hundred thousand mm. bucks, I mean, if you're smart, you can shoot a good film. So I will tell you a story. Um, Dogtooth opens on a tape recorder with a disembodied parental voice intentionally teaching incorrect meanings of words, such as salt being telephone. At one point, the daughter asks, pass me the salt, please. Or, no, pass me the telephone, please. When she gets the salt. Sorry, see how confusing it is. Um, two sisters and a brother seemingly alone at home. They scheme up games to play to entertain themselves. Uh, a man who we learn is their father drives a blindfolded, Lanthimos is into blindfolds, by the way, if you see it. Ah. A blindfolded security guard to the desolate home where the family lives so that she, Christina, for money, can sexually service the teenage son. Uh, This woman, Christina, is the only character with a name and the only outsider to visit the children and family. And she is also the kid's connection to the outside world, 
and occasionally gets them uh, hair gel or sparkly headbands and VHS tapes. Uh, it becomes clear the children have never left the grounds, that their parents are sequestering them, and that they believe that a wayward brother lives alone on the other side of a fence over which they throw treats and conversations to him. <laughs> uh, the father has lied. He has this elaborate lie at work about his wife's condition, saying she's in a wheelchair. She most certainly is not. And they use a secret telephone in the house, um, a rotary telephone, to m- communicate while he is at work. So she calls out on a rotary and he can pick up on what looks like an early cell phone. So, um, A dog trainer who is working with their dog refuses to release their dog because it's not ready. And I'm going to keep it to that to start. That's the story <laughs> I'm going to tell you. I came to the end of this film and I did reflect that um, there are a lot of scenes in this film that kind of look like they were kind of... Basically, they could have been written and then shot and then edited together completely out of order. I think a lot of the elements of this film could basically have been rearranged into almost any order Mm. and wouldn't make very much of a difference. It feels kind of like it kind of reminds me of sketch comedy again insofar as, you know, there's a number of comical, bleakly comical, maybe darkly comical, strange scenes, Um, but not a huge amount of structure in this film is there it's loose and baggy and there's you know a bunch of good scenes but an overall arching you know gradually progressing um inevitable plot is you know pretty slim isn't it it is it is um i liked it i really did like it i like i like that it was an hour and 37 minutes or something like yeah that. um and it was interesting because I was occasionally looking at the time running on the screen, and I was always surprised how much had gone by. So it actually moves pretty quickly. This is not a difficult film to watch. It's actually quite humorous. There are There's an, an interesting mix of long scenes that have some dialogue and then some little shorter little vignette, almost just um, visual humor scenes. Um, it adds up. I mean, I think it adds up to a pretty good film, but you're right. It's not... It's it's loose. It's not a tightly structured film. Um and you could probably rearrange the story a little bit and still get away with it, which is pretty, it's kind of a novel feature to a film. It's uh, not too often you could do that. I don't know how many films you could do uh, a complete rearrangement. You know, when CD players first came in and one of the novelties was that you could play the tracks of an album in any order. Exactly. Like you, could, you could do that with this film on a DVD and it would probably sort of, yeah, maybe coming out largely the it same. It would make about the same amount of sense, I think, yeah. Um, there is also it's also worth noting this film is not one to watch with the children. There's a lot of sex again. Yeah, and some uncomfortable sex because yeah. Christina eventually gets banned for giving um, eldest. I guess she's just called eldest. Uh, the daughter gets uh, a what I as far as I can extrapolate Rocky. Yep, the original Rocky film and Jaws possibly on VHS yeah. in exchange for. Oh, God, what was it? Was that in exchange for a sexual favors? I think it was, yeah, in exchange for sexual favors. Yes. Yeah, so there, and then there's there's some incest in here, too. That, incest at the request of the parents. <laughs> so I guess my, my biggest question about this film, just a couple of unanswered questions. Uh, you don't get much exposition on the parents. Like, why are they so scared of the world that they, they sequester their kids in this very rural, gated home? 
Um, we never really know why they're doing it. If they're just so totally paranoid about the way the world is going or conditions in Greece at that time, anything, any little hint might have helped a little bit, but you do not have that at all. Um, and you also don't have really much of the danger of the outside world. You don't see ter- very much of the outside world at all. Um, so we're not really sure exactly why the parents are really scared of exposing their children to the world and what that is exactly out in the world that they're afraid of exposing them to. Did you get a sense of any of that or not? I, I sort of, it felt a lot like, you know, a fairy tale again or a yeah. metaphor. This is kind of, this is why it works as a metaphor. It's effectively so blank that you can kind of paint any meaning you like over the top of it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it feels like, you know, there's a bunch of entertaining scenes and there's a bunch of good gags. There's also a bunch of fairly terrifying scenes. There's, you know, some unexpected sudden violence. Yeah. Um, some of it extremely violent and mm. some of it, you know, pretty shocking. Um, but it's kind of quite fable-like. So uh, I think you're allowed, the, the way that the film is shaped, you're allowed to put any interpretation on top of it you are you like. Which is why I think this kind of whole concept of Greece being about to exit the Euro and the world being full of uncertainty and this fear of of the outside or fear of the wider world and wanting to try and keep things contained and local and uh, sort out your own problems in your own tiny little territory. That's why, to me, that feels like that's a relevant little bit of background because it seems to me that the story is a metaphor for if not necessarily Grexit, then the whole nation, or the whole notion of internationalism or you know, international cooperation or at least of extending your your borders, looking beyond your own, your own kind of, um, your own area. So uh, that's what I took away from it. Yeah. But that said, I suppose, I don't know, should we ring the spoiler bell? Oh, yes, for sure. I think we've already spoiled it. But yeah, Probably yeah. reasonable to ring a spoiler bell cause, yeah, for a 2009 film. We'll ring it anyway because I enjoy it. Um, it's worth talking about the ending of the film because you know that's a pretty it feels like it's, it's only in the last 10 minutes that you feel like there is a bit of story direction that finally arrives yeah. there's a setup all the way through the film that the reason the children can't leave the house is because you you only know you're old enough to survive in the dangerous outside world when your uh, when one of your canines comes out one of your dog teeth the dog teeth of the of the, the title, title. Yeah. um and so frustrated by being hemmed in and frustrated and um, by being turned into a sex toy for her younger brother, the oldest daughter violently knocks out her own canine so that she can safely leave the house. And then she hides in the, in the father's car's boot. Is that the right? What do you say? What do you say? North America? Is it a boot? We say trunk. It's a trunk. Yep. Trunk. 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 Okay. Right. So it's boot in Britain, trunk in the U S. So she hides in the trunk. Um, and the whole family kind of, they go out looking for her. They don't find her. And then at the very, very end of the film, literally the last shot of the film, well, the dad, it's the morning. Uh, the dad gets in the car. He goes to work. You know, he parks his car outside the factory and the camera just lingers on that trunk. Um, I feel like, well, we're waiting for her to open the boot and get out and experience the world. But it's left ambiguous because we don't see any movement. Um, did you get to the end of the film and think, um, we've cut away too soon. We're about to find out whether she opens the the opens the, the the trunk, or did you feel like that was a bit of a cop out? 
cop out. Well, did you feel like, do you, Joel, did you feel like the film was telling you she's dead? I think the film was telling me she's either dead or is going to die. He's going to work an eight-hour day and she's going to suffocate or she's already suffocated overnight. Oh, that didn't even occur to me that she, right, that she might still be alive, but not for long. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. I also felt that this was a film that needed a better ending. That's the other thing I felt. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good enough film where it should end well and, and be clearer. But I think that's one of Lanthimos's things is uh, his films don't always end terribly clearly or with a satisfactory ending so um for me i think it was that's kind of like the ultimate theme of the film though it's um that she ironically she's gonna die under his protection and it's not because um she escaped the world prematurely it's that um um he didn't find her he actually didn't protect her so it's it's not the outside where the danger is it's the inside of the compound where the real harm is being done we see that in the film because the kids start to do some twisted things too and with one another um and um it's it's in in trying to escape um is when she actually suffers the greatest harm so I, i thought that was what the the final um take was the final message that they were trying to give us is that um it's not the outside world that's so dangerous. It's actually the parents' world. And in the parents' world, in trying to protect her, they actually kill her. So uh, that was my reading. That is a much more sophisticated interpretation than oh. my interpretation, where I just, oh. I blithely imagined that the moment the camera cut away, oh. um, I was I was waiting for there to be some sound effect on the soundtrack to show that she was oh. opening the boot, <laughs> or opening the <laughs> trunk, and uh, suddenly stepping out into this much wider, new, exciting world. I, I must say that I did watch all the way through the credits and <laughs> proved my grief Greek a little bit by looking at all those names. But um, I was thinking, oh, is this one of those films where maybe there's another scene to explain it? And of course there wasn't. It's not that kind of film. It's not like a Marvel film. I'm show you a preview <laughs> for this credit sequence. This is an independent and very inexpensive Greek feature. Um, so, yeah, I, I just knew. I just knew that the, that he wasn't going to end it cleanly. Having seen uh, the lobster, for example. So, what happens at the end of the lobster? Then let's let's spoil that for people who are otherwise enjoying a perfectly innocent podcast. Excellent, excellent. So, the lobster, two characters of fine. Wait, I'm spoiling it for you. That's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. I, I, having spoken enough about this guy's films, I feel like. <laughs> you've probably effectively spoiled the end of every film that I'm going to watch directed by him. So I, I feel like the, the, yeah, the, the work is already done. I'll transition and I'll try and be a bit high-minded about it. Um, <laughs> so I think that he's taking um, a cue from uh, Greek mythology. There's uh, the Rachel Weisz character and the Colin Farrell character finally sort of uh, met and uh, become romantic, become involved. They've paired up at this camp where you're supposed to pair or be turned into an animal. Ah. And she ends up blind, blinded for some reason. I forget why. And then they're at a diner, and he picks up a knife, and it looks like he's going to pull a tiresias and go to the bathroom and poke his own eyes out with the knife. Oh, my God. But they cut away before he's done any of that. Now, the reason I'm saying it's kind of... Uh, uh, mythological, because I think this film is uh, Plato's allegory of the cave to a certain extent. So I think a lot of that Greek mm. mythology or Greek philosophy is in Lanthimos, of course, as a as a Greek uh, director himself, and as a, probably a very well read man and someone who's brought fairy tales into uh, poor things and other stories as we've seen. So I, th- I really feel like this is sort of about. Uh, protecting the innocent so it resonates with poor things quite a bit and then just trying to present a different world to them telling them that like the the, the salt is the telephone for example sort of giving them these things whether they're true or not um, 
and then eventually releasing them into the world where they're supposed to experience things for themselves. And how, how do you interpret, if, if telephone is actually all of a sudden telephone and not salt, then you have to sort of rewire your whole brain. So it's, it's sort of this, this cogitation on how we perceive things and if we're even perceiving anything accurately and you know what the influences around us and our home environment does to us um, to prepare us or not prepare us for the outside world. Does that make any sense? Mm. I don't know whether you've seen The Crudes, which is a uh, animated uh, family film from about 2010, something like that, with Nicolas Cage in it, which is that that is uh, literally Plato's Plato's allegory of the cave oh. turned into a children's animated film. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's about a family of uh, Neanderthals who uh, forever cower inside their cave because they are frightened of the outside world. Until one day they have to go out of the cave and discover, hey, wow, there's a whole interesting world out here. This is great. I have to see that. Yeah, the Croods. Cr- cr- and interestingly, that that film has a writing credit by John Cleese oh. uh, of all people. Yes, um, yeah, much better than it deserves to be. The Croods. Okay good fun okay um that's one of the great benefits of having um a, a greek background which is that you can incorporate some greek mythology yeah. into all of your projects without feeling like you are you are um appropriating exactly. somebody else's cultural yeah. baggage i think we should mention that there's this bizarre competition to get out of the house too i think it doesn't really mean anything but the the, the kids earn stickers for various behaviors i guess and i don't know if that's going to get them closer to losing their dog tooth or what but there is this sort of competition among the kids to accrue stickers and sort of appease or or impress or satisfy their parents in some way um i think it was that the the i think the stickers mean that you get to choose the evening's entertainment oh that's all oh i think that was all that you got out of it but there was so little to entertainment to be had that yeah um, this is the one bright spot in your in your life. Otherwise, yeah, I love the, I love the, the videos that they're allowed to see are their own family videos, that, <laughs> <laughs> or that you can listen to your grandfather uh, sing a song on the on the on, on the record player, actually. Um, and it's Frank Sinatra, what fly come fly away, uh, fly me to the moon, or something like that. Um, yeah, with the dad giving a, was a live translation into yeah. Greek and completely making up everything that he's saying. Yes. I, mean, yeah. it's, I mean, these are all like little sketches, aren't they? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's hilarious. You could easily imagine this being part of a, an SNL yeah. sort of regular skit. You know, the isolated family, all they can do is watch family videos for fun. That's the only thing they yeah. have. Um, but I wonder whether making a film which seems so um, fairy tale like or seems so allegorical... It means the stakes feel kind of quite low because none of it quite feels real to me, I think. So I, I ended up kind of watching the film uh, not being completely invested because the characters felt a little bit too much like caricatures to me. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think for me, it's interesting. You're right. There, this, in part because it's so contained, the stakes are very low. Everything's going to be safe. Um, there's this threat of a cat at one point who um, meets uh, an unkind end. Um, mm. But uh, the stakes are very low. But I, I like the fact that the potential punishment for any transgression is really severe. Like she, <laughs> oof, 
I mean, it's not, it's no small thing to knock your own tooth out with a barbell, but um, she does that. And then she ends up dying just because she wanted to get off the campus of this house. And uh, the reality is, I mean, it makes total sense. They set it up perfectly because you, you have to be in a car. You can't get your driver's license until you've knocked out your right dog tooth or something like that. And then you can't leave the premises unless you have a car. And there's this absurd moment where there's an air toy airplanes falling just outside the driveway <laughs> barrier. And the father gets in a car with his son watching. He drives drives three feet forward, picks up the airplane, drives back behind the sort of perimeter of the property and everything's all fine and well. Um, so like, and, and I think for me, that's why I would like to see more serious stakes in the outside world because um, as a result, you don't really know what they're fearing or why they're doing this to their children. But I do like the fact that even something small could lead to something fatal basically you know you could die if you break these rules and i think for to a certain extent that's that i'll I'll come back to candide for just a second like voltaire just just agonizing over the fact that the hundreds of thousands of people did nothing wrong but they died in an earthquake that they couldn't have predicted and i think that's the kind of hidden danger in the world that maybe the parents are kind of fearing but also that um lanthimos is trying to explore is just the unfairness of of the human condition um, the dog. Can you tell me about the dog? See, this is the thing that really bugs me is that he they're having a dog trained. Right? This is another thing that's <laughs> yes. completely left wide open. He goes to visit the dog. He wants to get the dog from the dog trainer. The dog trainer won't set him. He's, he's at level two. He needs to be at level five before he can go to your family <laughs> or whatever. I don't know what the dog's going to do. The dog's going to be bored to death on this campus where they live or whatever. Um, and then at the end, he decides he's going to go get the dog. He's just going to get the dog back. And he, I think he's well, he's already lost eldest daughter, they think, and he's going to drive into town. He ends up going to work, but he, he promises his wife that he's going to get the dog, and the dog is going to change things somehow. And you see these images of a Doberman, kind of a nasty protection dog, um, being trained. But then when he's actually yelling, Rex, 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 again at this, <laughs> this dog, it's this little white fluffy dog who doesn't <laughs> want to approach him, doesn't seem like he likes the owner. And who would? Um, and also, he doesn't look like he's going to protect them from the cat, which has already been killed. You know, this this the one threatening animal out, out there. Um, so I just didn't understand the dog. And the dog, it turns out, we don't get an answer on that. So I, I was equally bummed out about not learning more about the dog as I was about seeing the daughter in the trunk at the end. There's another strand to the dog thing as well, though, which is that like towards the end of the film, they announced to the children that the mother is pregnant. Yes, and they explain all that he, she's going to have a son and a dog, doesn't I, didn't they? I think it was twin so, boys and a dog, wasn't it? it twin was, boys and a dog. Is this how they, they're going to explain that the dog arrives because the yes. mother has given birth to them? It, I know, it, it, like, you know, it seemed like a sort of a, uh, an entertaining gag, but I didn't quite understand how it fit in with the big picture. Yeah. You know, in the same way that one day you know, the, the dad throws some fish in the swimming pool and then the daughter yeah. goes out and notices, oh, look, fish have appeared in the swimming pool. And That's then right. the dad has to dive in with a... Um, with like a harpoon to catch the fish. Yeah. And I think they eat the fish or something like that. And the whole thing seems, you know, kind of crazily random. It's almost like if you told me that there, this, there was a four-hour cut of this film, um, you, know, you know, when there's like a, a lengthy sequence with some birds and then, you know, and then somebody, you know, has a, a long sequence with, you know, a rabbit glove puppet or something, yeah. I'd perfectly believe you because, you know, any of these bizarre comical things could have fit into the <laughs> film just as well. Um, it's all kind of feels a little bit random and it's all enjoyable and it's fun and it yeah. moves along, but it doesn't, I'm not entirely convinced that it really connects together. It's just sort of there. Yeah. But maybe that's the point. After all, this is what real life is like as well, isn't it? It doesn't all connect together neatly. 
It's all just a bunch of stuff that happens and it's all just there. Perhaps that makes it a more powerful metaphor than I'm giving it credit for. Yeah. I agree with you. I'm going to give this a single okay. I went okay, okay on the last one, but um, this is only going to get one okay. I, I like this film. I'm actually going to recommend it because I think it is just, it's novel. It's something you're not going to see very often. And yeah. it's got the absurdity that like, I think it's a brilliant, as a, as an er, I don't think this is his first feature, but as an early feature, I, I really congratulate them because it's it's obviously not expensive. They've got the one primary set with some stolen locations, cast of six, kind of eight maybe, shot really efficiently. Again, a lot of that wide angle stuff that you were talking about with poor things. And there's lots of really entertaining characterization in the dialogue <laughs> to kind of set tone. But I, you're right, it doesn't... A lot of the scenes don't necessarily hang together. It feels like it could be a sketch comic thing. It's I think it's probably intended to be like more comic and funnier than it really is. It's also very sad. So I think it balances these these you know the the happiness and the and the sadness of of drama really well. But it's an odd film. <laughs> <laughs> that that is the most uh, yeah profound conclusion I've heard yeah for some time. It is an odd. You're exactly right. It is an odd film. It is an odd film. Well, for all the oddness that we've seen, I'm still going to ask you whether there's anybody that you've seen that reminds you of yourself uh, this week. Let's play my favourite game, Who Am I? Who am I? Yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do... Um, yep. I'm going to occupy two bodies. I'm going to do bo- body doubling here, I guess. <laughs> it's one of them the brain of a goat. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea that you could be a baby's brain inside an adult, though. If you wanted to be Bella, where you'd be Bella's brain or Billy's body or Bella's... That's a good question, yeah. 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 Um, but I'm not. I am Max in Poor Things. I love how he's observing, he's patient, He's uh, he likes the quirky girl, um, and he wants to help. Um, I like that. Um, so definitely Max. Uh, but I'm torn here because I also loved the... The cynical philosopher Harry Astley in uh, Poor Things, who shows Bella the ugliness of the world. Oh. Um, I really thought that was a, a great character. Again, not in there for more than 10 minutes or so, um, but he takes her into Alexandria and shows her this just desperate poverty that really changes her. And he's just, I, th- I think there's this argument we'll talk about a little bit later, I think, um, um, uh, humans as as beasts or humans as uh, angels and I think he's central to that argument and I'm going to jump in and I'm going to say I know who you are, you are Godwin because he's a doctor, <laughs> medical type Godwin Baxter, <laughs> James Rizekas there's, there's loads of doctors in this week's films actually, there's, there's loads um, I, I I don't feel like I'm particularly like Godwin because that man's obviously an incredible creative genius uh, and that's not me. Um, there is a bit of the hapless Max in me, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, largely because, you know, um, I remember watching Glumly as a lecturer, you know, dissected some sorry corpse and harangued the audience when I was a medical student. Yes, I was that guy <laughs> watching somebody be dissected in a big theatre. And yeah, I've, I've sat in that seat and felt um, equally uncomfortable. Wow. Um, but if if I was thinking, I, I came to the conclusion, if I feel like anybody, um, I think I feel like one of the boat crew. There's a scene uh, in the boat in Poor Things yeah. when um, Duncan Wedderburn, he's, um, he wants to throw uh, this kind of elderly lady, Martha, overboard. He's yeah. this kind of woman who's befriended um, uh, Bella. As, as, he, as he tries to pick up her chair and throw her overboard, all these kind of 
boat crew turn up and try and stop him and like there's a big wrestling match as yeah. they try and stop him throwing the chair overboard and that just reminded me of what I did this week of anaesthetising a child who really oh. didn't want to be anaesthetised oh, <laughs> I've, I've done my own fair share of wrestling this week and then I saw it right there on screen as well so that was who I felt like this week yes nice. uh, a doctor in real life a wrestling boat mem- boat crew <laughs> member in, in, the, in the film <laughs> well so a lot, lot of a lot of uh, common ground uh, in this week's film. Should we try and kind of draw it together with a synthesis? Yes, please. So, uh, both films kind of about men controlling women, I think. Um, and both films sort of about women being complicit in the control of other women. So even, I mean, even in Dogtooth, uh, the boy is the favoured one, isn't he? Yeah. He's allowed more leeway. He's given more rewards. You know, in, in both of these films, the kind of the girls featured are kind of chattels. Um, but I'll, t- I'll tell you what, and I wrote a little uh, note in my book here. You know what these films really make me think of? What they make me think of is Alan Dershowitz. Ooh. So, oh, so wow. bear with me, right? So yeah. I, right, I had never heard of Alan Dershowitz before um, the film Reversal of Fortune. Have you seen that? Made it, in 1990. Is that the Klaus von Bülow film? The Klaus, Klaus von Bülow film, exactly, with Jeremy Irons in yeah. it. Okay. Um, so uh, in that film, Ron Silver plays like the real-life Alan Dershowitz, who comes to represent uh, Klaus von Bülow in, in court. And then... Since then, so Dershowitz, he was on Harvey Weinstein's defence team. He was on Jeffrey Epstein's defence team. You get the picture. This is Alan Dershowitz. Anyway, so um, uh, I was reading on the internet and he he wrote this well-known op-ed in the Los Angeles Times in 1997, arguing that the age of consent is far too high. And I wrote down this little quote. He says, um, the age of consent should be lowered. 15 seems like an appropriate compromise. So this is a, a, a newspaper article from Alan Dershowitz saying, Yes, I want to have sex with 15-year-olds, and that seems perfectly reasonable. Um, But the reason these films make me think of this is because this kind of one of the uniting themes of these films is kind of the sexualization of children. Yeah, we, I, I talked earlier on about this this kind of this kind of strange notion that somehow the perfect woman in some people's eyes, or in some kind of society's eyes, is a fully grown sexual being with the brain of an eight year old. For yeah. some people, that's the ideal. Wow. Um, and I think there is a kind of force of infantilization, kind of about the world in general. Not necessarily just an emphasis on youth, and not just this kind of Victorian notion of of innocence, but this kind of this notion that an ideal woman is a trusting, non-threatening, compliant, suggestible woman. I, th- I don't know what that says about the world um, that that sees that as some kind of some kind of ideal. But that somehow I feel that that, that it seems like a distillation of some of the themes of both of these films, the way that sex is used to control people or pe- sex is used as a commodity that you can suck out of people. Uh, that sex is a um, not necessarily something which is associated with adulthood, but it's something associated with compliance or curiosity about the world. I don't know that that was kind of what rang through my brain after watching these films. I don't know whether I felt particularly happy or clean after thinking those thoughts, though. Yeah, well done. I think there's there's one line that supports that. I think um, in Poor 
things the 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 madame the one who runs the brothel in mm. paris is talking to to bella and she says they're talking about sex and she says to her men enjoy that you don't enjoy it ah. so that for me that was the moment that that encapsulates that theme that you think i think you've well articulated um right there um yeah, it, it, there's a lot of uncomfortable viewing in this film. I mean, uh, there's there's the one where, oh boy, the scene where the French gentleman takes his two sons to watch him having sex with Bella <laughs> oh to teach God, them yes. how to make love, and it's and then obviously some God that was impact. Yeah, some of the things in Dog Tales. I mean, there are a lot of yeah. Th- th- that's why I think normally I wouldn't say it, but there's too much sex in that film, and I think yeah, I think that's probably why. So it's, it's a tough um tough theme to explore for a director these days. I don't, but I think you're right. It might be. It can't be accidental, but it's in there. You're right. And it's funny because The Favorite, which is uh, the Olivia Coleman film that he just made about the Queen, um, is, again, about female sexual agency in some way. There are no male lovers in that film, I don't think. Mm. It's been a couple of years. But, um, yeah, I, I would give you that. I think that rings true um, for sure. For me, the thing that I get, I get stuck on a couple of things. First of all, I... I Poor things. I feel like that's the film that Terry Gilliam always wanted to make. Oh, yeah. Or those kinds of films. Like Terry Gilliam, I'm a big fan of Brazil. I saw it in my formative years. It's one of those things that really made me start, want to start thinking about film more seriously. Um, and I think Terry Gilliam just had a rough run because he he made some good films, but he also made some real crap. And I think <laughs> you know what with the advances in filmmaking, um, and I'm really glad that Lanthimos worked. Seems like most of the time he's working with a writer, and I think that helps a lot because mm. I think a director who's already really focused on style um, needs someone to make sure that the story is there. And Dogtooth, it's it's kind of there at times, you know. But um, I think having McNamara work on poor things, I think it gives it more structure and meaning than it probably would otherwise have. Um, but I kept thinking about Terry Gilliam because it just seems like his his whole niche. Um, but for me, I think it's real. Both films really are about, and I'm going to. I'll come back to the two stories, Candide and the Allegory of the Cave, because I think both stories sort of um, explore whether or not the world is good because of humans or bad because of humans. Um, ah. I love. There's one point where um, Max, who's already engaged to Bella, is talking with Godwin about. Um, losing Bella because uh, Wedderburn comes along and takes her away and on the trip to Lisbon. And God says, would you rather the world did not have Bella? It's like this idea of don't, we shouldn't just keep her right here. She should enjoy the world and people, other people should see Bella. Um, and I think for me, there's also this, like this Rousseau Voltaire debate, like does society civilize us or corrupt us? And those, you know, those two philosophers were on either sides of that debate and they died on the same day and, in whatever year it was. And you know, they're kind of like enemies or rivals in the world of philosophy, but they've got this great debate going on. And I think that's what's going on in this, in both of these films. It's that, um, if you experience the world, um, does it make you like a better person? Does it make you more human somehow? Or does it make you less human? Whatever that human thing means. And, you know, she's, she's, she's constantly debating when she, when Bella comes into her mind on that cruise ship and she meets, I think the old woman's name is Mary. And then Harry's her sort of traveling companion. Right. She starts to debate whether humans are cruel beasts or not. And, and Harry takes her down to see, 
the, they're eating at this fantastic outdoor place on an island in Alexandria or some part of Alexandria, and then they're looking down, and there's just this utter poverty and children starving to death and people digging graves right next to the plot of dirt where they're living. And it's um, she's saying, she comes back to Wedderburn and says, if I know the world, I can improve it. So it's this idea that if you experience it, if you see it, then you can at least make the world a little bit better. Now, whether making the world better is taking your ex-husband and turning him into some sort of poodle for the garden... That's it. That's an interesting <laughs> question. But um, as you said, maybe he didn't deserve that fate. But I, I think the story, both stories from this this foundation of sequestration, yikes, oh, yes. sequestered characters in just constrained and in small spaces and situations where they really can't don't have much freedom, and then letting them out or or not. How does that change their their um, life perspective and their lives, given on what level of connection and uh, interaction they have with society. I mean, because that reminds me of another contemporary issue, which is this idea of sequestering people, of like suppressing knowledge and suppressing experience, suppressing exposure to ideas. Yeah. Um, We've talked before about this kind of this new, slightly alarming trend of people trying to ban books. Yeah. Um, which feels like you know a very contemporary story, which is examined exactly in the, in the notion of suppressing knowledge and trying to keep things under wraps and stopping people from getting out in the world that we see in both of these films. I mean, the, the banning of books is like that—that that is the red carpet that we lay down, which allows fascism to enter the party, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think you know, this is this this notion of forbidding knowledge yeah. of of suppressing knowledge as a medium of control this is something that should be discussed because we see it not just in fiction but in the real world as well yeah, yeah. although you know interestingly it's, it's, i remember kind of people saying this when i was a, a child if, if if you want to make children long to read a book tell them that it's banned yeah <laughs> point to the book on that shelf and say oh you mustn't read that there's no oh you definitely mustn't read that and you can bet every child in the room will be desperate to pick up that book yeah. and read it so maybe it's a clever double bluff this this banning of books i don't know but mm, i don't know i don't think so but you're right it will stir the curiosity for sure so this is kind of feels like it's another you know contemporary theme that that's being explored in this film or be it in both of these films will be they in, in kind of allegorical ways yeah there, I mean, these films are also about funny dances and weird sex, though, too. Which <laughs> we would be uh, remiss if we did not mention that. <laughs> You're right. I forgot about Yeah, they are have both got funny dances. The dance that she does in Dogtooth, I had to read this up because I didn't remember it myself. But apparently that is the dance uh, from Flashdance. Oh, really? Oh, well, that makes sense because... That's yeah. supposed to be the third tape, maybe, that she has that she has seen that's right the idea was that she'd been learning things from vhs as i did yeah. that's how i learned so much of my uh <laughs> filmmaking was borrowing vhs one thing i was going to mention is that um there's also this idea that um the french will give you an award for just about anything like that Ed <laughs> con dogtooth had a in certain regard i don't know was it best feature or yeah, up and coming directors or something like that. It's just if you do things that are kind of weird and leave the ending wide open, the French are going to love it and they'll give you an award. <laughs> That's another synthesis piece. I had. That's good advice for everybody listening. I think <laughs> yes, keep it weird and don't do an ending. Yeah. <laughs> Right, we have just got time. Speaking of VHS tapes and flash dance, yeah. we've just got time to talk about what also has been playing at this theatre. Do you want to go first this week? 
Sure, sure. Um, boy, I'm lucky. Everyone should have a club in their neighborhood that shows old films on 16 and 35 millimeter. Oh, yeah. Because it was, it was great. This week I saw um, All About Eve. Wow. Um, which is probably 1950 or 1951, something like that, um, with um, Betty Davis uh, and Baxter and Marilyn Monroe's in there a little bit, George Sanders. Um, it is a Mankiewicz uh, film. Uh, fantastic. It's always great. I love seeing it again and again. So we did see it on the old reel. I think it was on 16 millimeter. He was projecting it. Um, wonderful. Wonderful. Very, you know, very funny, very old school, very... Um, sort of a critique on theater and, and by extension, I think, the the, the world of film. Um, and it's just always worth seeing. So I would definitely recommend that All About Eve. Is that, is that uh, All About My Mother that quotes from All About Eve, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing that kind of struck me during it. I remembered because um, Almodovar like, quotes directly a lot of scenes uh, from that film ah. in All About My Mother. And I don't know how much sense it makes in hindsight, but it's clever. Um, and I think what he's... He's sort of quoting more what what he imagined as a stage production, right? That's a, a theater actress. So it's he's working, I think, from the assumption that we all know the film, but that was some sort of the the actress in in, in All About My Mother was touring a, a, a production of All About My Eve for the stage. Uh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, it's funny though because seeing that kind of analysis of the theater world on film, I found that. Um, we were talking with my in-laws afterwards and my wife, and they were, you know, they kept talking like it was a critique of film. Well, it's not directly a critique of film because they're actually talking about a theater piece. But it was interesting to see how quickly people had morphed it into this this mm-hmm. analysis of both theater and film. So I think that's it's, it makes sense that Elmodovar does the same in hindsight. See, if they made it today, it would be about two YouTubers, wouldn't it? Yeah, something like that. Influencers. Yep. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of uh, films with two strong female leads, uh, playing at our theatre this week, we watched uh, Disney's Frozen from 2013 Ooh, uh, again. Yeah. Um, uh, we had a little bit of time at home after Christmas and uh, New Year was all done, so we rewatched Frozen, not having watched it for many years, watched it a lot with the children when they were younger. Yeah. Uh, good to go back to it again now. My two are 16 and 14. Uh, and uh, we all still really enjoyed it. I think it's uh, maybe Disney's best film. I think it's a pretty spectacular yeah. achievement, actually. Um, every time I watch that film, I see new depths, um, mm. new gags. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Great film. Hmm. I, I'm guessing. Have you seen it? Jeez, um, I hate to admit this, but I was a little inebriated when I saw it. And I don't think you're supposed <laughs> to see Frozen... <laughs> Under the influence, so I need to go back and have another look. Yeah, watch it, watch it sober. <laughs> <laughs> Won't be long before, yeah, my children will be old enough to play the frozen drinking game that's, as well. Well, that's funny you should mention that. I was watching with my niece, who was actually very intoxicated, so it made it funny to watch her watching Frozen that she'd seen as a kid intoxicated. <laughs> so I'm going to go back and maybe not watch with her and maybe not watch with any alcohol. <laughs> As promised earlier, um, uh, we uh, will do the socials. Uh, so uh, we are on Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club. Uh, do uh, look us up, uh, if only to enjoy some beautiful photographs of Dino. You can read the blog at Two Real Cinema Club dot com. You can comment on our YouTube channel, and you can email us at Two Real Cinema Club at gmail dot com. Uh, next time around, so it's. Uh, 
Back to animated film then, we're going to jump from Frozen to The Boy and the Heron, the new Miyazaki film. Uh, and we are comparing that uh, to one of his finest uh, Studio Ghibli films, My Neighbour Totoro. Uh, I've seen uh, My Neighbour Totoro. You never have, am I right? I have not, no. So I'm, I'm going coming to both of these films brand new with Bella's eyes. Exciting, yeah, exciting. Um, Brilliant. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, Always a pleasure. Uh, uh, Join us next week for some old nonsense of the popcorn counter, and uh, we'll see you then. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.